we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I think after that, you did go out and buy some adult-sized uh, baby wipes for your crottle area. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and when I was at the drugstore looking for them, I, I needed help finding them. And, I, and so I just let them know that it's <laughs> – They're right next to the adult <laughs> diapers, these are, right? <laughs> these are for my wife and I pointed at you. That's right. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, our stories of adventures and misadventures as we travel to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. In today's part one of two episodes, we're talking about our first dory boat trip on the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon in 2016. That's right. We spent two years planning and getting ready for this trip, and it was totally worth the wait. With 14 of our friends and some very skilled boatmen, we took off on an epic trip down the river. And for six days, we floated through the canyon, we hiked to wondrous places, and we camped under the stars on sandy beaches. From keeping our beer cold to navigating the groover to mastering the art of high siding, we walk you through the details of life on the river during our first Dory's Ho. And if the words Dory's Ho sound familiar, it might be because we wrote a book about this trip that's titled Dory's Ho. So after listening to this episode, if you're eager for even more stories from this trip, then you'll want to head over to Amazon and get yourself a copy of Dory's Ho. And to kick off today's show, we talk about the very first day of our honeymoon and what went so very wrong within 24 hours of our wedding. And at the end of the episode, we'll answer a question from a listener in our mailbag segment. Now, I know this particular episode is going to air on December 3rd, but as we're recording it right now, we are in the thick of Thanksgiving preparations. And did you notice that I put the giant turkey in your beer fridge? Every year, a turkey <laughs> appears in my beer fridge. 
I don't know how I feel about that. There's usually not enough room in my beer fridge for an entire turkey. I know, but I think there's two things that you don't mind that I put in there. One is the turkey and the other one is the giant pumpkin pie from Costco. And the whipped cream. The whipped cream is, <laughs> the whipped cream is allowed <laughs> in my beer fridge all year long. The green bean casserole is not welcome. Oh, ever. You're not going to talk about the green bean casserole <laughs> again, are you? In my beer fridge. It's, it's a no-fly zone for the green bean casserole. Turkey, pumpkin pie, whipped cream, those things. Really, that's the only list. Okay, got it. Uh, but you know what's special about Thanksgiving this year, don't you? I do, <laughs> because I've heard this for the last 38 years. <laughs> it's our wedding anniversary. And That's, this one it ha- actually happens on Thanksgiving. That's right. It, it's not always on Thanksgiving. Our wedding anniversary is November 26th. But I love it when it's on Thanksgiving because it seems very appropriate, doesn't it? It Something does. Something that we're both so thankful for. <laughs> we, we didn't get married on Thanksgiving, though. No. Back in 1982 when we got married, it was actually the day after Thanksgiving. And we were 12. I was 12. <laughs> you were 11 at the time when we got married. In Kansas, you can do that. That's right. And we actually got married in Missouri. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. And we had kind of a rough start. Uh, the first 24 hours were a little rough. So <laughs> we got married and we weren't 11 or 12, but we were pretty young. We were 21. I had just graduated from college and you I was still the in high school. Little baby that you were. <laughs> <laughs> you had a semester left to go. <laughs> but I remember so we were as poor as church mice back then. <laughs> we had, poor church mice. <laughs> we, were, we, we, we would be <laughs> if there were a bunch of church mice in the church, we would be the poor church mice. That's right. We had no money to our name when we first got married. And at the wedding ceremony, I don't know if people still do this or not, but at our wedding ceremony, as gifts, people handed us cash. They literally handed us like they would hand us a $100 bill and there were cards with cash. So we felt like we were rolling in the money. <laughs> yeah, I had a fat wallet that night. Mm-hmm. I think it added up to about $600, which, well, I still think $600 which is, is a lot of money. $700 more than we, we had at that time. <laughs> That's right. But back then, it seemed like a million dollars to us. It's still a lot. Oh, yeah. yeah. So the day after we got married, we left for our honeymoon. And we had planned to spend a week in Vail. We had rented a condo. And Vail was really special to us back then because you spent had spent most of your summers vacationing with we your family in Vail. We did yeah, a lot of family vacations to Vail. And, mm-hmm. and you had come out there with us one summer, summer or two before we got married. So it was a special place. And it's, it's obviously, it's in the mountains. It's beautiful in the wintertime. And so right there at uh, the end of November, it's kind of the start of their ski season. So we thought that would be just a great outdoor place to have our honeymoon. Yeah, and Christmassy and a magical place. So from Kansas City to Vail, it's about 700 miles and it's a 10-hour drive. So when we left the day after our wedding, gosh, we hadn't gone more than, what, about a half an hour and it started snowing. Yeah, the weather turned bad quickly. I think that's what you were referring to, the rough start. Well, no, the rough start's coming. It got rougher, (laughs) but we're driving along I-70, and it was was a whiteout blizzard, 
And I remember you had to keep pulling over because the ice would build up on the front windshield and you couldn't see. Yeah, it was coming down. It wasn't coming down dry snow. It was slushy ice and it was freezing. So it would freeze on the windshield and then the windshield wipers would get covered in ice and then they wouldn't work. So I'd have to stop every, I don't know, gosh, every 10 minutes Mm -hmm. to break up the ice off the windshield wipers. That's right. And at one point, so it was so cold, I had taken a blanket from the back seat and I put a blanket over myself. My entire body had a blanket over it except for my head. And at one point, you got out of the car and you pulled your wallet out of your back pocket and you tossed it and you said, here, hang on to this. And it landed right on top of the blanket. Yeah, I I was worried that I was getting in and out of the car so many times and having a fat wallet that it would fall out of my back pocket. So I gave it to you. I said, please take care of this. Uh, put it in the glove box. Uh, protect it with your life because it has <laughs> – You didn't say any of that. Because it has all the money. You did not say any of that. <laughs> that we have to our name. But we kept going and, gosh, I think you were driving like – you couldn't have been going more than 20 miles an hour. It was so bad out there. We knew because of the weather forecast that it didn't extend all the way to Colorado, this storm. If we could get through it four or five hours, then it would get better. Mm-hmm. So we just kept going. We didn't stop. Right. And after five hours or so, we pulled off into a McDonald's to get some food. And this was in Colby, Kansas. And the snow was letting up by then. But gosh, I remember the parking lot in Colby, Kansas of the McDonald's was there were snow drifts of three to four feet tall. It was crazy. So I got out of the car to go in and I bought us food and you kind of scraped off the rest of the car. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. we got uh, I think we got chicken McNuggets for dinner. And, <laughs> That's and, right. Uh, Fine dining. Yeah. And, <laughs> and we continued on. We had actually – we weren't planning to go to Vail that first day. We figured it would be far enough to drive to Denver. So we had booked a room, I don't know, at a Hampton Inn or somewhere in uh, – I guess they didn't have Hampton Inns back then. I don't in, know in, what it was. In the Denver area. Mm-hmm. We, we had a hotel. So we pulled up in front of the hotel and – It was you, time to check in. <laughs> time to check in. And you – opened the car door and you looked at me and you said, hey, hand me my wallet. Remember the the, the (laughs) wallet that you were going to put in the glove box and and protect with your life? And all of a sudden, I just had this kind of sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. And I'm looking on the blanket and on the floor and there's no wallet. And we both get out and we look under the seats and we pretty much tear the car apart. So after searching the car, there was no wallet, and we realized what must have happened is when we got to the McDonald's in Colby, Kansas, and I opened the door and got out and sort of shook the blanket that the wallet must have flown out into a snowdrift somewhere. You threw my wallet into the, into the <laughs> snow. That's what you did. That's the short explanation. You threw my wallet and all the cash we had to our name uh-huh. in, in the snow. Right. Not only the cash, but your credit cards and your ID. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everything yeah. that you had was gone. <laughs> right. So I was driving without a driver's license. So you were mad. You were mad. And I was crying at this point. <laughs> you were you were crying a little bit. I was. I contained my anger. Well, here's the thing. I had no anger. I, no, I, I was mad. I, I was not angry. I was hmm. wasn't happy. Right. And I was mad at me too. So I mean, So we were both t- mad we were at you. Both <laughs> mad at me. <laughs> I remember that I was crying and I said to you yesterday you promised to marry me for, for richer or poorer, for better or worse. Yeah, I didn't realize that it was gonna be 
poorer and worse within the first 24 hours. <laughs> I, thought, I thought maybe it would take a little bit longer for that. It was a quick one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we were, oh gosh, we were so bummed out. So we spent the night in Denver. Like I said, we'd already prepaid the condo. So we went to Vail the next morning. We were sad. We were glum. It was the most dismal honeymoon start that you could possibly imagine. It, was, it wasn't It was great, but I remember that first day. It, it wasn't that bad. I mean, we marshaled on and mm-hmm. we, we were having some fun. <laughs> <laughs> So that night, just before we went to bed, now remember, this is in 1982, so there were no cell phones back then, but there was a phone in our condo in Vail, and the phone rings, so we answer, and it's Matt's dad, who lived in Kansas City, and he told us that he had received a call from the folks at the McDonald's in Colby, Kansas, who told him that a snowplow driver who was clearing the parking lot found the wallet and had turned it in. And the other thing that they mentioned was when they looked inside the wallet and they realized that there was $600 in cash inside, they put it in their safe. So not only did they not take the money, they looked in the wallet and saw how much money was in it and made sure that they took care of it. I know. I tell you, we were... We were so amazed. It was yeah. like it was a Christmas miracle, and we got our honeymoon back. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was a ho- yeah. It was, it was a now, miracle. I'm not sure what that says about us. The fact that we were despondent because we lost six hundred dollars, and then we were overjoyed when we got it back. But anyway, we called the McDonald's and thanked them and told them that we'd stop by on our way back from Vail. Yes, we we go into the McDonald's in Colby, and we get the wallet. I don't know why they gave me the wallet. I had no I- identification <laughs> on me. <laughs> I guess I could show my driver's license in the wallet that looked mm-hmm. like me. But, yeah, all the cash was there. And I think we we thanked them by buying, what, like extra chicken mm-hmm. McNuggets that afternoon. We did. And yeah. we tried to find out the name of the snowplow driver so we could call him and thank him. But they had no idea who it was. And, and unfortunately, we, we weren't able to get a hold of him. But I kind of credit him for well, maybe saving our marriage is, is too strong of a of a word, but <laughs> saved our honeymoon. He saved our honeymoon for sure. And look what's happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, snowplow driver. <laughs> Hey, today's a big day, Matt. You know why? <laughs> why? It's our first two-parter podcast episode. <laughs> I've always wanted to do a two-parter, Karen. Dream come true. <laughs> and it's a dream come true. So, And you know why it's a two-parter? No. I because really... we messed up. We thought that we could do all of this in one episode. But after we looked at the time and we'd been talking for an hour and we weren't even halfway through... We panicked a little bit and thought, "Uh uh-oh, we're going to have to split it into two different episodes. That's fine. It's it's a topic worth two parts. It's so big. (laughs) So big and so exciting. So today's episode is part one of a two-part series about our two dory boat trips on the Colorado River through the magnificent Grand Canyon. This 
part one will be about our first trip that we took in 2016, where we floated for six days and disembarked at Phantom Ranch. And then part two, coming next week, will be about our second trip in 2019, where we did the entire length of the Grand Canyon, 280 river miles on an 18-day journey. That's right. We liked the first trip so much that we decided to do the whole thing the next time. I yeah, know. We, we loved this trip. We loved both trips. People know us for the Dear Bob and Sue series, but we have another book out there called Dory's Ho. I know. I don't think anyone knows no, about it, but we're going to tell you Dory, about it. Dory's Ho. <laughs> Nobody knows about Dory's Ho. Dory's Ho is the name of our book and, obviously, of these two episodes. So maybe, Matt, we should explain where the name comes from. Well, a dory is a small wooden boat. And the ones that they use in the Grand Canyon, they're about 19 to 20 feet. And the cool thing about a dory is you're sitting really close to the water. You're down by the water. And unlike most wooden boats, it doesn't have a rudder. And so this allows the boatman to steer it and and maneuver it around the river, especially through the, the rapids. So that's what a dory is. Right. And we'll have to explain the hoe part. It's not ho, ho, ho. It has nothing to do with the holidays. But we'll we'll explain the ho part later in this episode. When we were first trying to think of a title for the book, I mentioned, hey, how about Dory's Ho? And you were not a fan of that name at the beginning. I wasn't a big fan I because I floated that title to some friends and every person I suggested it to or, or, I, or I mentioned it to said, who's Doris? <laughs> they thought I was saying Doris. And it, no, then then they thought it was about a prostitute named Doris. So I thought... <laughs> Doris the hoe? Yes. Yeah, so I, I thought that, that maybe that's not a good, good name. But uh, since you liked it and mm-hmm. I didn't like the title, we decided to use the title Doris. So. <laughs> well, of course. Yeah. That's usually how that's, it works. That's, that's how the decisions <laughs> in our household happen. So. Pretty much. We had been wanting to float through the Grand Canyon for a long time, like 20 years, because people had told us that it have been on these trips, that it was the best trip they've ever done in their life. Yeah, we were talking to our friends, Craig and Aya. We were on a trip together, what, back in like 2014. And I think we were playing cards and, and we mentioned casually that, boy, someday we should do a, a river trip through the Grand Canyon. And I, I think that is as much as we discussed it. And after we both got home, Craig emails like two days later, and he had the whole thing figured out. <laughs> he, he had the options, how, you know, how to do it, what company we should go with. And it was just a matter of you know, literally signing up. I'm not sure we would have done it if he hadn't taken the initiative to to get the ball rolling on that. So to help us narrow down our choices, we already knew that we wanted to, to do this on a dory instead of a raft. We had all read the book The Emerald Mile by Kevin Fedarko, which told the epic story of the fastest ride ever through the Grand Canyon. And that happened to be in a dory boat. Which, by the way, is a, a really good book if you're looking for an adventure story. Yeah, it's incredible. It's a lot of great history of the dams along the Colorado River, the the Glen Canyon Dam, and then of course the, their trip through the Colorado River on this this speed race through the uh, through the Grand Canyon. 
That's right. But first of all, let's talk about the Colorado River for a second as it flows through the Grand Canyon. You know, most visitors to Grand Canyon National Park are looking down from the rim. And most places along the rim, you can't even see that there's a river down there. And I know we've talked to some people who were surprised to find out that the Colorado River does run through the Grand Canyon. It flows about 280 miles, starting at Lee's Ferry on the east to Pierce Ferry on the west. If you want to float the Colorado River, you have a couple of options. If you're an experienced boater, you can apply for the lottery to to have a chance to guide your own trip. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, the rule is you then have to do it yourself. You can't then go hire a commercial boating operation to then take you down. It has to be your trip. And and so you can do it that way. Or you can go with an approved commercial outfitter. Mm-hmm. And so we we looked at the Grand Canyon website, uh, the Grand Canyon National Park website to look at all the outfitter links to figure out who, who we wanted to go with. But I, I think that's interesting that people do it on their own. I know. And the key word is experienced boaters. After seeing <laughs> what this journey looks like, You've got to have some skills. Although we passed some uh, (laughs) non-commercial trips. And let me just say that some of them didn't look experienced. (laughs) (laughs) Or if they were experienced, they they didn't have all their wits about them. That's right. At least when we passed them. (laughs) Now, the commercial trips run anywhere from 3 to 18 days, and there are a lot of options. These approved commercial outfitters that, as Matt said, you can find on the National Park website, they book out one to two years in advance, and there are different types of trips, right? Different types of boats, we should say. Right. You can can go in rafts where either you paddle or the commercial guide paddles, or in some cases, both. And then there's motorized craft. We're not going to go into the different routes available and the cost of all these trips. Every outfitter has a website that has all of the details on there. So if you're interested in any of these, you can certainly you know check them out for yourself. As far as when to go, mm-hmm. we had to decide, you know, what's – I mean, they, there's an eight-month schedule. So they, they start fairly early in the year, and those those trips can be cold. But – Craig also found out that on September 15th, that's the latest date that the Park Service allows for motorized craft to enter the Grand Canyon National Park, go down the river. And so he thought, well, if we book a trip after that date, there'll be less traffic and you won't have the noise of the motorized rafts. And so we booked uh, booked a trip for kind of started the last – week of September. And we decided if we could, what we wanted to do was to book the entire trip. Now, each trip allows for 16 passengers. And we thought, what would be more fun than to do this trip with all of our friends? So, you know, we weren't sure who would want to do it with us, but we took the leap of faith and we booked all 16 spots. And then Craig and Aya asked three couples and we asked three couples and nobody said no. <laughs> right. We filled it up pretty quick. We did really quickly. If you do the entire river trip, it's around 18 days, but we decided to do the first half, which disembarks at Phantom Ranch and then the passengers hike out 
And fortunately, the mules carry your duffels. So this was a six-day trip within another night's lodging at Phantom Ranch. In order to do a trip that's only halfway through, Phantom Ranch is really the only place to take out halfway through. And so that's why either you do kind of the full thing or you get out at Phantom Ranch. Right. It's not halfway through the canyon. It's actually only 89 river miles. But as Matt said, if you're expecting people to hike out on a maintained trail or hike down on a maintained trail, that is the only option is at Phantom Ranch. And it's good to know that because if you're going to get out at Phantom Ranch, or for that matter, if you're starting at Phantom Ranch because you're hiking in, you need some time to prepare. <laughs> and fortunately, need- we had two years to prepare. That's right. We started looking at our options in 2014, and we booked a trip two years out. So that was September 2016. And we actually, I don't think we said this yet, we booked it with the outfitter called Ors, O-A-R-S. Oh. So, yeah, we had two years to get ready, and mainly that involves getting in shape to hike out of the Grand Canyon. Now, the good news about that is we had already done that hike out of the Grand Canyon. We had stayed at Phantom Ranch before. And the bad news about that is we had already done that hike out of the Grand Canyon. We knew that it was was difficult, so (laughs) we had that to look forward to. But fortunately, we didn't have to uh, carry a lot of stuff out. Like like you said, the mules carried the, the bulk of our gear out. Yeah, the hike out is about 10 miles and 5,000 feet elevation gain. So all of us on the trip spent a a good chunk of time training for that hike out. Now, another thing that we did for those two years was I did was shop online. (laughs) Right. Many times. Matter of fact, you shopped for so long that some of the things you bought, you decided you needed a new version of that thing before the trip happened. So that's the downside of planning two years out. But but Ors did a good job of sending us a list of everything you need. So and how much room, you, how big your duffel bag can be and how much it can weigh. So we had a lot of time to get all of our gear ready. That's right. It was a very comprehensive list. And actually, we needed everything that was on that list. And the good thing is they provided the tent and the sleep kit. So we didn't have to do that. Now, you can bring your own tent and bedding if you want. But we all of us on on the trip decided we'll just use their tents and sleep kits. Now, one of the main questions that we got when we told people what we were doing was... Can you drink alcohol on the river trip? What's the deal with booze? Unfortunately, the answer is yes, you can. You cannot drink it. It's against the rules to drink it while you're on the river. So in the in a boat, that's a no-no. Um, but while you're on the shore, you can drink. And thankfully, oars is well-practiced at accommodating alcohol for for their guests. That's right. They, they send you a list ahead of time, a very specific list with types of beer, the wine is all box wine. When we went the second time, there were actually some canned cocktails available. So you fill out the form how much you want, which is a little tricky trying to figure out how much you're going to drink for the entire time. But you fill out the form, you write a check for the amount, and you send it to Ors, and they take care of it for you. So that was a nice option. <laughs> Another question we got a lot was, how do you stay clean on the river. Mm-hmm. Are you going to bathe? And, and of course, we thought, well, well we're going to bathe in, in the river. All it's, the time. It, yeah. <laughs> and if we bring the biodegradable soap and, and shampoo, we'll do that. Well, that's that's <laughs> we'll we'll talk about that later. Now, John and Lolly also went on this trip with us and it was fun comparing notes and, and preparing for this. They had the idea that instead of 
bathing in the river, they would just use like wipes, like sand, like mm-hmm. like large baby wipes. Yeah, and, huge and, baby and wipes. And you can get them that are that are big size. And mm-hmm. yeah, so it, we had a lot of fun conversations about how well that would go. <laughs> you went, I think one time when we were drinking whiskey and playing cards, John offered up the advice. He said, you know, I've been on trips like this before, and the secret is all you have to do is keep your crottle area clean, and you'll be fine. Uh, <laughs> I believe so, his exact words were, keep your crottle area clean, and you have nothing to worry yeah, about. <laughs> except crottle's not a word. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> I pretty much checked every language. It's, it it's, doesn't exist. So We got the gist of what he was saying. I, and I think after that, you did go out and buy some adult-sized uh, baby wipes for your crottle area. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and, and when I was at the drugstore looking for them, I, I needed help finding them. And, I, and so I just let them know that it's. <laughs> They're right next to the adult diapers, these are, right? These are for my wife. And I pointed at you. That's right. Well, two years of preparation passed pretty quickly. And all of a sudden, the trip was upon us. And we all met in Flagstaff, Arizona, the night before launching. We met at the Doubletree Hotel. And that night before, we had a meeting with our trip leader, Eric, who gave us a lot of great information. And he also gave us our dry bags that we had to fill that night. Yeah, I think Eric was checking us out. They do that the night before they do an orientation. I think it's their last chance to abort the trip if, <laughs> if uh, the, the guests are, are maybe too unruly or, or unpleasant. So uh, we passed that test. Yeah, they gave us the dry bags. I, I remember looking in mine, and mine had a little bit of sand in it, and I thought – well, I don't want to put my clean stuff in in this bag that has a little bit of sand in it. Little did I know uh-huh. that that was the least amount of sand I would see for the next six days. That's right. Now, they have an arrangement with the Doubletree Hotel. So the next morning when we had packed up and were ready to go, we could store our extra luggage in a storeroom uh, at that Doubletree. And then we came back and picked it up at the end of the trip. And we left pretty early that next oh, morning. Yeah, it's like, it was six, like 6.30 mm-hmm. and it was cold. We had... We we literally had winter clothes on because Flagstaff's high in elevation, and we were a little concerned that you know in a few hours we're all getting in boats and splashing around in the water. And they said, "Don't worry, we're going down in elevation. By the time we get to the water level, you'll have all the winter clothes off." And that was true. We we drove out to uh, Lee's Ferry, and by the time we got there, it was nice and pleasant. That's right. And when we got to the boat launch, there they were, our four dories and three supply rafts. And we had a crew of 10 and then plus the 16 of us. So that was our trip. And it was kind of fun that most of the boatmen, except for a couple of youngsters, were all really about our age. Mm-hmm. And so I remember thinking one very quickly after meeting them that we had the all-star crew. We did. I mean, we had the very, very experienced boatmen. One of them was a historian. There was a geologist. Andy was a boat builder Mm -hmm. and and repaired dories. And a professional photographer was on the trip. So it was a great crew. Now, I will say, spoiler alert, for our (laughs) second trip, that was a great crew, too. I know. What we found out is they're all the A-team. All of these dory boatmen and women are incredible, and they have a wealth of knowledge, and they live such interesting lives. So it was really fun to get to know them along the journey. 
Another thing that surprised us was the amount of stuff that you could fit inside a dory and also inside the supply rafts. It was like a magic trick. I mean, it really was. <laughs> it was. We kept loading stuff in there, and it just kept disappearing below below deck somewhere. And these boats are not that big. No. The, the supply rafts are, are pretty big, but those two – I mean, there's a finite amount of space, and they have to carry food for 26 people. Uh-huh. For 18 days, even though we were only on it for six days, they had another group of guests coming after we left. So they were they had to have supplies all the way to the end of the 18-day trip. I thought that maybe they would resupply at Phantom Ranch. Uh, that's what I thought, too. Because, like, how could you have all mm-hmm. the stuff you need for 18 days? And they didn't. No. It was incredible to see. They had – 26 full-size folding chairs. They had a couple of, what, steel uh, kitchen tables that folded up. There were pots and pans. There was a stove. Then, we, of course, there were all of our dry bags and all of our sleeping kits. There were sleeping pads and the latrine equipment. They had firewood in there. They had firewood. <laughs> they, they had horseshoes. They had a, that's right. Halfway <laughs> through the trip, Andy pulls out a full set of horseshoes. Now, I think I kind of got the gist that maybe some of that stuff was ballast. And of course, it's pack in, pack out. So all the trash had to go back in those boats. That's right. On the way out. So the way the dory works is the dory's Each sit four passengers. So two people are in the front, two people are in the back, and the boatman sits in the middle. Now, before we took off, we were all assigned life jackets and helmets, and those would be ours for the week. We kept the same life jacket and helmet. The life jackets needed to be very snugly fit. Essentially, the reason for that is if they have to fish you out of the water, what they do is they grab that life jacket by the loops up by your ears and they are hauling you out. And so it has to be very, very tight. So each of us had to adjust our life jacket specifically to us so that they were tight. I adjusted mine so tightly I could barely breathe. I didn't want to have any issues if they had to haul me out of the water. So once we boarded the boats and we were ready to take off, one of the boatmen, whose name was Rondo, told us about a tradition they have on the river that they say brings them good luck. So every single time that we would set off in the dories, a boatman would yell out, dories, and everybody else would respond, ho. (laughs) And so that's how we came up with the title for our book and for this podcast episode, Dories Ho. And that's how we started the trip. It was nice, clear, clean water, shimmering green in the sunlight. (laughs) Of course, this water is coming out of the bottom of Glen Canyon Dam. It's about 48 degrees. Sun was shining. It was beautiful. And we start down the river. Uh huh. And the reason I'm laughing is because that – Clean, beautiful water lasted for not even five minutes. No, it it was I, I think it was maybe a quarter of a mile. I remember floating down and looking at the shore and I thought, guys, the something's strange about the shore along the, the river bank. It's like moving. And quickly I realized like the shore was not moving. The Perea River was entering the Colorado River at that point. And it was so muddy, it was the same color as the shore. 
And it was then mixing with the Colorado River and very quickly after, without exaggeration, it was the color of chocolate milk. Yeah, the reason the water was so muddy and and debris-filled coming into the Colorado River was because there had been some storms the previous couple of days. And so all the mud and everything else had washed down and was coming out of the Perea River into the Colorado River and turning everything downstream a beautiful chocolate brown. (laughs) I think right as we kind of got into that brown water, John hollered over and said, so you're going to bathe in that water now, Matt? (laughs) So So you were thankful to have the adult wipes at that point. (laughs) Now, just past the three-mile point as you're headed out, you float under the two Navajo bridges. So there's an old Navajo bridge and a new one. The new one is the one that carries automobiles across it, and the old one has been relegated to hikers and bikers. And so you float under it, and that kind of marks the gateway into the wilderness. Yeah, you're kind of of going off into the wilderness. Uh We were excited for the rapids. We didn't know – really didn't didn't have a sense of when the first one would be coming up or how big they were. So we did get – a guidebook in the mail from Oars months before the trip, and it did give us some good information about the river. And one thing about the Colorado River, it's unlike any other river in the sense that the rating system for the rapids is different. It's not the international whitewater ratings that are used on every other whitewater river in the world. And and that one has like a it has a rating from one to six, and they're usually put in uh, Roman numerals. Uh, the Colorado River has a rating of one to ten. So when we say we did a a number five on the Colorado River, that's not the same as a whitewater Roman numeral number five. That's right. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Colorado River is what they call a pool drop, meaning that for most of the river, it's like a pool. It's, it's calm, almost like a lake. And then you get to these points where it drops maybe anywhere from 3 to 10 or 12 feet. And right there where it drops or there's debris in the water, those are the rapids. And you there's a lot of excitement as you're going through the rapids. there's another pool and so you row to the the next rapid so that's a pool drop but most of the time on the river it was tranquil wasn't it i mean very smooth kind of like a lake Mm -hmm. so it does move a little bit but the boatmen do have to push the boat along or it's going to take forever to get down the river so when we started out at lee's ferry the walls of the canyon are very 
short. <laughs> They're very low, and you can drive all the way down to Lee's Ferry. But as we went mile after mile along the river, the canyon walls start to get higher and higher. And it didn't take long before we felt like we were in the Grand Canyon. Now, technically, that area, that first area is called Marble Canyon, still part of, of Grand Canyon National Park. But that first day we went, I think, about 16 miles or so. Does that sound right? Yeah, it was about that. Our first campsite was Hot Nana. Uh, that was the name of the campsite. <laughs> not Hot Nana. <laughs> not, no. Was it, was Which it, is what I thought it was. Wasn't, a, wasn't short for a, attractive grandmother. It was, I, I don't know what, it is, what the translation is. but And we get to the shore and they kind of let us out. Mm-hmm. And we helped unload all the rafts and boats. And as soon as all the boats are unloaded, people grab their their gear bags, uh, their dry bags, and they scramble through the beach trying to find a place to set up a tent. That's right. Now, it wasn't clear to us at first, on at that first campsite, what our job responsibilities would be on this trip. But we figured the faster we helped unload the boats, the sooner we could get to the beer, which was at the bottom of one of the supply rafts. So we made what was sort of like an old-fashioned bucket brigade, right? We lined up and we passed all of the sleeping kits and dry bags from one person to another until they ended up into a big pile on the beach. Or until somebody saw their dry bag come down and then they would bolt <laughs> and, and forget what the bucket brigade was. But That's right. Yeah, we got and, – and I thought – I think it's interesting that they've done this so many times. They know that the hatch that the beer is in, that they do not unload that hatch until the very end. I don't even remember what equipment was in there on top of the beer, but that's the last one because they know as soon as we see the beer, <laughs> we're going to stop <laughs> stop helping them unload. So they saved that hacks till the very last. Yeah, they were smart. They they got that figured out early. It's interesting because all of the campsites are so different and some are large and there are a lot of areas where you can set up your tent and have privacy and then some of them are small and you're actually right next to your neighbor. So this one was pretty large. We had a nice private little spot and I remember that Rondo did a tutorial on how to set up the tents because it was our first night and you skipped that tutorial because you figured you already knew how to set up the tent. Yeah, I, <laughs> I didn't need to be told how to set up the tent. But, but, but no, you did. <laughs> no, I, I was two beers in to the tent setting up by the time mm-hmm. I finally got around to it. And then that's that's when I needed a little bit of help. Mm-hmm. We figured it out, though. And while we're doing all this, meanwhile, the crew is setting up the kitchen and starting dinner. So they rotate the cooking duties throughout the entire trip, and they take turns cooking and, and cleaning up. We had many conversations that the guys at least did leading up to this trip about how are they going to keep the beer cold? I know. They're that gonna, was a big worry. They're going to keep it cold, aren't they? And we <laughs> knew the answer was they're not going to put it on ice. They're not going to have ice for 18 days for, for the beer. And so <laughs> at the orientation, this question came up. And they said, oh, we have a great way to keep the beer cold. We store it at the bottom of one of the rafts. And that area where we store it, that's a little bit submerged in the river. And so the beer stays at a frigid 50 degrees. (laughs) 
And we were all looking at each other, wondering, is 50 very cold? I know. What's the what's a refrigerator? <laughs> yeah. So th- suffice it to say, the, the beer was plenty cold. Mm-hmm. And what they do, they marked each can of beer on the bottom with the person who ordered it with their initials. So, for instance, we were looking for... MS, because they marked all of our beer with your initials. I'm not sure why, but everyone's initials were on the cans. And then for the bags of wine, well, they were actually boxes of wine that they took those inner bags out, put them in a a fabric carrying bag and hung them on the snack table. And those were also marked with the person's initials. And you could also, at dinner time, you could take that bag and you could hang it on your chair. So that was, the, <laughs> that. that's kind of a, now, a, what, a life habit of yours is that you always hang your bag of wine well, yes, because next to you, wherever you are. Why would you walk 20 paces if you could have it right next to you? Right. <laughs> I think what people are most worried about and most curious about is how do you go to the bathroom on these river trips? I worried about this a lot. I mean, to the point of like almost not wanting to go on the trip. Mm-hmm. So going number one is easy. It, well, it, for men. Well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll get into that in a second. <laughs> so going number one is a little easier than number two <laughs> because you can use the river. Now, in a lot of locations in national parks and public lands, it's not okay to to pee in the river. But in the Grand Canyon, because there's so little rainfall, if people urinated on the sand, that would that would be a problem. It would it's just would take so long for it to be diluted by rainfall that it would just it just be a mess. So in the Grand Canyon, not only is it okay, it's the way you go in the river. And they had a little saying for this that Dilution is the pollution solution. That's right. On the Grand Canyon mm-hmm. River. And we also need a little bit more instruction on that because you can't have everyone heading off to the river at once. <laughs> and so they had a, a clever saying skirts up, pants down. Mm-hmm. And what that means is, which I think a lot of the men didn't quite understand this, including someone here, but skirts up means women pee upstream and pants down means men pee downstream. So this is for when we stop for lunch, when we stop for hikes. This is telling you which direction to go for a little privacy. Yeah, I didn't get that. I know because you kept wandering like, What are upstream. you guys doing? Why, why are you guys in a circle? <laughs> you guys would form a circle and, mm. and take turns being in the middle of the circle. Well, yes, because it's harder for a woman to pee in the river, obviously, right? I don't know. And there's no privacy. So we, the rest of the gals would form a half circle around the person and we would be facing out. So the person had a little privacy and then we would take turns, right? You could just get in waist deep. Well, you could, but it was so it, muddy. It was um, it was muddy. muddy but water. what's funny is the first couple of days, everyone is just so concerned about their privacy, and and I don't want anyone to see me. And by the end of the trip, nobody cares. It's, yeah, it's, I'm just going to go pee right there. Nobody look. <laughs> yeah, we got familiar pretty quick. But however, and so that's only part of the issue. Mm-hmm. And so what they do is they have these boxes. They're essentially about the size of a toilet, square box with a toilet seat. And they're sealed aluminum boxes that is the toilet. Called the Groover. It's called the Groover because years ago, it just used to be literally a box with a hole in it. And if you sat down on it, 
to do your business. You'd get up, you'd have grooves in your backside. So then they, they decided to put toilet seats on them and they no longer groove your backside, but they're still called groovers. Every time we landed for the day, the first thing that the crew would do is scout out a site, a private site to put the groovers. And there was always at every site somewhere in the bushes that was far enough away from people and private that you could put the groover. That's right. And I will just interject for a second. We always waited to see where the groover was going to go before we chose our campsite because you don't want to be right next to the groover for a couple of reasons. One is by the end of the trip that there's a little bit of an aroma and also because there's a lot of traffic back and forth to the groover. Yeah, we made that mistake one night. We We, did. We didn't didn't quite. It took us a while. We're we're slow learners. (laughs) But they do a nice job because the other thing they do is is they put reflective – or those, what do you call those reflective things? They path Ref- reflectors. <laughs> they put like like you would see at the edge of somebody's driveway, right? And they make they put those on either side of the path. So if it's getting dark, if it's night, you can find your way to the groover. But let's talk about the specifics of the groover. <laughs> okay, I tried to put it all out of my mind. I know. So it's a chemical toilet. And next to the groover is a a can of this white powder with some holes in the top of the lid that you're supposed to shake onto the contents of the groover when you're finished. And this helps break down yeah, it, uh, your helps, business. Yeah, it helps with odor. And, and Andy was the one explaining all of this to us. And he goes, yeah, and then when you're done, you just, you know, you sprinkle this on like like powdered sugar. He said, like powdered sugar on a chocolate donut. Yeah, yeah. We, did, I, we didn't need that imagery. So we named it the bakery. Yeah, so we had to go to the bakery. That was mm-hmm. code. That's but right. But I, I got to say, we had two groovers that first night. And I think even for the second and third night, they only put one out. And, and you would think, how are 26 people going to share a device like that without it being a problem? And it never was. No, everybody took turns and it didn't seem to be a problem at all. Now, we should mention, too, that next to the groover, so the groover is for poop. And next to the groover is a another big bucket. It's a pee bucket and it has a toilet seat attached to it. So that's obviously for pee. So you don't do the same thing on the same one. Yeah, and that was mm-hmm. that was mainly for the middle of the night so that they didn't want people trying to go down to the river to pee because – you know, you could you could fall in pretty easily if you're sleepy. And so they're like, yeah, especially for the women, don't try to go down to the river in the middle of the night. If you have to get up, there's that bucket. Well, yeah. And the other thing they did, too, which was a, a step better, is they had little buckets, these little blue buckets that they called pee buckets. And they had, I don't know, 16 of them. And you could take a pee bucket back to camp with you at night and do your pee business in there. So you didn't even have to walk as far as the groover. You could do your business there and then throw it in the river in yeah, the morning. That, that first night, I I thought, I, I don't need a pee bucket. I can just go down the river. And then I almost went face first in the river. And, and then <laughs> after that, I, I always knew where my pee bucket was. That's right. So how do you know when someone is using the groover. So you just walk back there no, and you, you just you whistle and you say, hey, anybody back here? That's what I thought. That, that I was that was one of my big concerns. That's right. You, you do want a little privacy in this instance. So they had a good system. They said, we only use one roll of toilet paper at a time. 
And when it's done, we'll get a new one out. And there's just one roll of toilet paper per groover. And the toilet paper roll sits right next to the hand washing station. We should say also that there's a hand washing station right at the beginning of the, of the path to mm-hmm. go to the river. And so if the roll of toilet paper is sitting next to the hand washing station, you know that the toilet is empty, right? There's nobody back there. If the toilet paper is not there, <laughs> do not go down the path. That is the key. <laughs> That's right. And I would say like only once in the trip did somebody leave the key back there. Mm-hmm. I think we literally were 26 of us were in line waiting for the toilet, and then we realized, okay, there's 26 of us here, <laughs> and there's nobody <laughs> there's, there's on the no, group. <laughs> there's nobody. There's no nobody left. So somebody right, left the toilet. Right now, another thing that the boatmen are very particular about is hand washing, as they should be. They don't want people getting sick and spreading all kinds of illnesses, so they're very strict about. There are hand washing stations set up in other locations too, and. Before we have a snack, we wash our hands. Before we have dinner, we wash our hands. After you leave the bathroom, obviously you wash your hands. But they are watching to see who's washing their hands. And I don't think they called anybody out because I think we were good about it. That's right. So the dinners were always great, right? They made really good, hearty food. There were things like grilled salmon, grilled chicken. One night we had hamburgers and hot dogs. Uh, We had spaghetti. We had all kinds of things. So the crew would cook, and then what we would be responsible for would be doing our own dishes. They had a dishwashing station set up, and we would go through and wash our own plates and and silverware. Yeah, and at night we had enough time to, after dinner, we sit around in the chair circle. Oh, we didn't mention the chair circle. Yeah, they had 26 portable chairs that that every night we would put out in a circle in in the big sand area. And that's where we would eat. And we'd also, after dinner, we would tell stories. Often the boatmen would take turns telling us stories. Mm-hmm. And they'd play music. They'd play music. Andy would get out his guitar. Yeah. And some, even some nights we had campfires. They had some firewood. You have to bring your own, right? Yeah. You can't scrunch for wood. Right. You? And so they would take, they would have these mats. And they were very careful never to drop any food scraps in the sand. And so they would put mats down. Uh, They would take one of these mats, place it on the sand, put the firebox from the grill on top of the mat, and then build the fire inside the grill. And so that there would be essentially no trace of a fire or, for that matter, the next day, it was like we were never there. Mm -hmm. It was amazing sitting in that chair circle as the sun went down and there's a fire going and a guitar playing. And, okay, I'm not going to cry on this one, but still think about it. Not yet. We're we're not done yet. Let's try to get her to cry later. (laughs) We are in the heart of the Grand Canyon and the stars are starting to come out. We had a little contest about who would be the first person to spot a star. And it was magical. Just on, on night one, the magic was already happening. <laughs> now, we all had tents, although we slept in tents the first night. After that, we uh, mostly slept out under the stars. Yeah, because the tent was hot and muggy. It wasn't like our tent where there's all this ventilation at the top and then you can put on your rain fly over it if you want to. There was no ventilation. There was no rain fly. It was solid canvas. So I, th- I remember getting really hot and muggy in It was there. a little muggy. So we mm-hmm. most nights we slept out. The dory boatmen all slept on their boats. The raft boatmen, some of them would sleep 
on their rafts. I think there was always a boatman on a raft just just in case the thing comes unmoored in the middle of the night. You want to make sure there's a person on the raft, at least to be able to bring it back to shore. But then a few of the other crew would would sleep out under the stars with us. Yeah. Now, mornings start pretty early, although you don't have to get up early. Uh, the crew would get up to start the coffee, and they blow a conch shell when the coffee is ready. And then the rest of the mornings are pretty leisurely. We'd always have a big breakfast. Then we'd wash dishes. Then we would take down tents and pack everything up. And then we'd have to reload the boats. That all took a, a long time, it seemed like. Well, coffee was always ready right at 6. And w- I don't remember pushing off before 8.30 ever, and sometimes even after that. So that's – you'd have two and a half to three hours in the morning. There's plenty Mm -hmm. of time to Mm -hmm. sleep in if you want, have breakfast, do whatever. It's interesting because we would look at our phones at the time to see the first day or two. And then after that, we were on what they call river time, and it didn't matter what time it was anymore. And, of course, we didn't say this before, but uh, it's probably obvious there is no cell service down there. There is no Internet. There is no communication with the outside world. So it doesn't matter if it's 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock or 2 o'clock, right? You're on river time. Yep. Now – the first morning we wake up on the river, it felt like the double tree in Flagstaff was two weeks ago. Right. And so we were in a very different place mentally. But it was also our first day to really go through a big rapid. Mm-hmm. And right beyond Hotnana Camp is a rapid called House Rock Rapids. And that was our first big one. So let's talk about the rapids for a second. Now – The rapids are caused by three different things, right? You can have a constricted river channel, which increases the velocity of the current. You can have an uneven riverbed, which increases the turbulence. And you can have an elevation drop from one end to the other, which enhances the speed and the turbulence. So those three factors combine to form the rapids on, well, on any river, I guess, but especially in the Grand Canyon. Now, because of the dam, the Glen Canyon Dam, it's not a wild and unpredictable river anymore, but there are still some scary, dangerous rapids. I think there's, what, 68 rapids on the... Yeah, named rapids Mm -hmm. in the canyon. That's right, notable named. And uh, they change from time to time because as storms come through and wash debris into the river, these rapids aren't the same every time a boatman goes through them. So it's still a little bit of an unknown what you're what you're getting into. That's exactly right. And every boatman wants to have a golden run. And every passenger wants to have a golden run. And what that means is no collisions and no flips for the entire trip. So that that's the goal for everybody. <laughs> Before we set off that first morning on the river, Eric gave us the safety talk, mm-hmm. and he was very thorough, very calm, talked about, you know, you're going to get wet, might want to wear rain gear. You're definitely going to want to have water shoes on because, I mean, you're essentially, you're going to get soaked. And, and then mm-hmm. there are times when, and he was the lead boatman, if he said that we needed to wear helmets, everyone had to wear helmets. Otherwise, it was up to the boatman of the boat you're riding in. Right. Uh, and, and then, of course, if you wanted to wear a helmet the whole time, you could. But <laughs> it was funny. Then he said, he keeps going. He goes, okay, so then sometimes we have involuntary swimmers. 
when I'm whispering to you, what's an involuntary swimmer? <laughs> it means when you're when you find yourself in the river and you didn't intend to be in there. And he talked about what what you would do and what the signals are, the hand signals, because sometimes you you can't hear the boatmen. So there, there were some hand signals that they showed us, and then it kept going. He said, and then. You know, we could have a situation where the boat flips and then we talk about how to right side the boat. <laughs> and then as if it couldn't get worse, he said, and then sometimes the boat flips and you're stuck underneath the boat. Uh, trapped was the word he used. <laughs> you're trapped. And, he's, and he said, so your head could be up in the footwell which would have a pocket of air. He said, so so you'd be fine for a while, but you're going to have to get yourself out of the footwell. And it's pitch black in there. He's going on and on. So he said, you have to feel your way to the side of the boat, push yourself down out of the footwell and up and away to come up for air. So I see his lips moving (laughs) and I know he's talking. I am freaking out at this point. I am so nervous. All I hear is la, 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 la. The entire crew, they were fantastic. They were super nice all the time, very even-keeled temperaments. But Eric said, and you want to get yourself out from under the boat because you don't want a boatman to have to come and get you. That's right. That's right. And the other thing he said was, if you fall out of the boat – swim to either your boat, if you can, or another boat. He said, do not swim to shore because if you swim to shore and the boats go past you in this turbulent water, which they probably would, they have to try to row back upstream to to pick you up. Or they have to beach and hike back up. To get your sorry ass. (laughs) (laughs) So you don't want to do that. Oh, my gosh. And and he's telling us, you know, and and if you become an involuntary swimmer, you want to float facing downstream with your feet in front of you. So when you hit the big rocks, your feet will hit them first. And and he is just telling us all this. And my heart is racing a million miles an hour. So I was worried about flying out and hitting a rock. I was worried about getting trapped under the dory or trapped in a whirlpool. I was also worried about just having a heart attack or a stroke if I get tossed out of the boat. So this was very stressful. <laughs> but you made it okay. We're here, we're, Spoiler we're, we're, alert. We're, we're here, here to, we are. to be able to do a podcast about it. The other thing he explained, so we had a job to do as passengers. And our job is when the boatman tells us we have to high side and then we have to bail. Do you want to explain what the high side means? High side is basically you're trying to push your weight against oncoming waves so the boat doesn't flip. So if you see a wave coming, you're supposed to lean into that wave right as it hits the boat because then it kind of equalizes the pressure of the wave. And if you do this effectively, you can keep the boat from flipping. Mm-hmm. And there there were some times where we had to do this. It's kind of counterintuitive, right? Because if you see a giant wave coming towards you, the first thing I'm going to do as the boat lifts up is I'm going to rear backwards away from the wave. And they said that's the worst thing you can do because then, of course, the momentum, if everyone's leaning back and the wave's coming, it's going to tip the boat. So this counteracts the action of the wave, right? So the wave's coming, the boat's lifting, and you're leaning forward into the wave to try to get the weight of the boat down. Yeah, or sideways. Sometimes Mm -hmm. these waves are hitting you on the side of the boat. Uh, So we would do that a few times with, with really big waves. But even in the smallest rapids, 
there was a, a ton of water got into the dories. So the dories are sealed. The footwells where and, and where we're sitting would fill up with water. And that water is so heavy that when the boat is filled with water, now they won't sink. You, you could you literally fill them up completely. They won't sink. But it makes it very hard for the boatman to steer and to push the boat. And sometimes they have to steer very quickly to uh, miss something. So we would have to bail as quickly as we could. Right. And we we bailed like crazy people. We bailed so fast when they told us just to try to get that water out of there. And then other people have asked us, how do you hang on when you're sitting inside the boat? So that's it's pretty straightforward. Depending on which side of the boat you're on, you have one hand on the gunnel. Right. And you have one hand in front of you. There is a handhold. So you're holding on with both hands and you're planting your feet and sort of bracing yourself. Every boatman had their own preferred way for us to sit, when we, especially when we went through really rough water. Sometimes they wanted us pushing against each other back to back. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they wanted us at the edges. Sometimes they wanted us leaning forward. So we had to learn over the course of the trip what that particular boatman wanted us to do. That's right. Now, before we could do House Rock Rapids, the boatman climbed up this cliff to scout it. And, and they do that on all of the big rapids. They all climb up. They take a look at the rapid from above so they can see where the problem areas are, where the rocks are. And then they make a plan as, you know, we're going to enter it here. We're going to do this. And so they climbed up to scout it. And then we were off. We were a little nervous pushing off. We did a dory hoe. I'm not sure it was a, a good enough dory hoe. Rondo made us do it a second time. Sorry, I think everybody for was nervous. Extra good luck. I forget if we were the second or third boat to go through, but uh, we were a little bit less nervous after the first boat went through because even though the, their boat was tossed about, we could hear the laughing, mm-hmm, the screams mm-hmm. of laughter coming back at us. So we figured that they were having a pretty good time, but we quickly realized as we got into the rapids that the rain gear is worthless. Well, yeah, because you and John were in the front. And it's interesting because when you're in the back and you see the bow rise up and it's almost vertical, and then the wave just comes crashing over you guys. Right. It went in my rain gear in the top. I filled up like the (laughs) Michelin man. So the rain gear just held the water in. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, after that, we didn't, we didn't use the rain gear after no. that. But. but it turned out, I mean, so this particular rapid was actually a blast. It was. It felt like being on a roller coaster. You were up and down and sideways, and it was really fun. And one of the surprising things is the waves hit you by surprise. Now, sometimes you, you see a really big one coming, and that doesn't end up hitting you. And then all of a sudden, a surprise, a sneak wave comes in from the side and drenches you. So we were soaked. But I have to say, it, it was exhilarating, and I actually loved it. Yeah, and even at the end of September, it was still warm enough that uh, we didn't mind getting wet. I mean, it's cold when oh, those yes. waves hit you. Uh, like I said, the the water is anywhere from maybe 48 to 50 degrees, which doesn't sound cold until you, you – know, go under once. <laughs> but uh, you do dry off pretty quickly. You do when it's sunny. 
So after we went through the rapid, we pulled over for a mid-morning hike up North Canyon. Now, every day we did a different hike. And unfortunately, we don't have enough time in this episode to tell you about all the hikes. But they were absolutely beautiful. Most of them dead-ended in a waterfall or some kind of beautiful pour-off or an Indian ruin. So the hikes were incredible. And many of them you can only access if you are on a boat trip on the river. We just pulled over for lunch on a sandy beach. The whole crew, they set up a couple of tables and they say, we're going to set up lunch and your job is to stay away from this table because (laughs) knives are flying and we are preparing lunch and we do not want hands being stuck into the middle of what we're doing here. And of course, they weren't able to set up a dishwashing station or anything like that, so they said everything at, for for lunch is finger food. And, and uh, you were worried about that because I think you thought so, it was going to be like appetizers for yeah, every every lunch. But, but lunch <laughs> was great. And they, they, they did put out some snacks for us in order to keep us away mm-hmm. from the food prep table. They, mm-hmm. they had some peanut butter and apples and they would put out one can of Pringles <laughs> for, for all of us to <laughs> – <laughs> to have a couple of Pringles before lunch. Uh, that's right. We were laughing because it's tough to share one can of Pringles amongst people. Yeah, I usually people. eat one, one can of Pringles <laughs> myself. myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the lunch is no plates, no napkins. So your hand is your plate. And they're very particular about you dropping any crumbs because they don't want to encourage the red ant population. And so there, you have to scour the sand for any crumbs when you're done eating. Yeah, so most of the time we would eat right, like right on the shore. So if something did fall in, food falling into the river was okay. So as Matt had said, after that first night, we started sleeping out under the stars. And the second night, we were downriver at Little Redwall Camp. Now, I was worried about sleeping under the stars because there are creatures down there in the Grand Canyon, smaller creatures like snakes and scorpions, tarantulas, mice, ringtail cats, bats, and as I'd mentioned, the red ants. So I was concerned about sleeping out in a sleeping bag and having something crawl into my bag while I was asleep. Well, fortunately, we got Maybe the river calmed us down to a point where we became less concerned about this stuff. I wanted to make sure that there was no snake in my sleeping bag or anything like that. So we actually left our sleeping bags all rolled up in a dry bag until we were ready to sleep so nothing would crawl in it. But, yeah, I don't know. Everyone else was sleeping under the stars. And, I don't know, maybe a couple beers later we're less concerned. That's right. We did relax as the days went on. And I will say that looking up at the stars as you're falling asleep, and sometimes I'd wake up in the middle of the night and there'd be shooting stars. And, of course, you could see the Milky Way as plain as day. And it was – it just added to this incredible experience to see the night sky. Yeah, pretty quickly the days settled into a routine, and we really enjoyed the routine. You had plenty of time in the morning to take care of business and and get ready for the day, and yeah, just going down the river in magnificent scenery, stopping for lunch on a sandy beach halfway through the day, and finding another cool place to camp that night. That's right. And every day there was a hike. And I'd say we spent about probably four hours on the river every day. Yeah, four or five hours. But on day four, we had a big event that some of us had been waiting for for a long time. Somewhere between mile 63 and 65, we stopped to bathe for the very first time. Yeah, the boatman had said that there was a creek that entered the Colorado River and there was a big eddy. And the eddy was 
big enough and shallow enough that it kind of got a lot of solar energy. And so the water would heat up a little bit more than anywhere else on the river. And so they thought this is your best shot at taking a bath in the river for those of you who don't want to get into the cold water. That's right. Unfortunately, it was still muddy and still dirty when we got there. But we had our camp suds with us and most people got in and bathed. I actually, I think I was the only one of the passengers who didn't. You could have been. I think you were taking pictures. I made the mistake. <laughs> the water was still so cold. And for some reason, I lathered up my hair with shampoo before <laughs> I had really committed to getting in. And then I realized I can't just get my head in. So I, I had to dunk myself in the room. And man, it was, it was cold. It was cold and it was muddy. I know you looked like one of those dogs that had a protective cone around its neck and it's trying to... <laughs> <laughs> Is that what I looked like? Now as we're doing the podcast or, or back then when I was bathing? Back then when you were bathing, you were trying to get the, all the suds off your head without to, getting your body I in. I tried to dunk one half of my head at a time. I actually have pictures, but I don't know. I, I, might, I might accept some payment to not post those pictures. I have other pictures of you. So I would be careful with that. Now, on this particular leg of the trip, the Hans Rapid was the biggest rapid that we were going to face, right? It has a 30-foot drop. And the boatmen were a lot more nervous about that one than the others, which kind of then made us nervous. We stopped, again, pulled off to the side before we got to that rapid so that they could scout it. So Rondo was our boatman that day, and it made me nervous because he was taking it very seriously, and he put on shoes. Most of the times the boatmen are barefoot. He put on a helmet, and so all of a sudden we were paying attention. And he wouldn't let us goof around in the boat. We he, we actually had to stop joking. Oh, I know. <laughs> and They also don't like it when you joke about flipping. If we say, oh, no. oh I hope I hope we don't flip. They, yeah, that's, yeah, that's not a good thing. But no. that was an exciting rapid. It's interesting, on a lot of the rapids, the water is almost glass smooth right before you get to the rapid. And this one had a particularly large drop right at the beginning. It was a ledge. And I remember as we got closer and closer, we were going really slow. And at one point, you could just feel the river pull the boat in. Mm -hmm. we, we started moving faster. And that was the only rapid I can remember. When we went over that cliff, I think we went airborne <laughs> because we hit the bottom of that first hole with a bang. And Rondo was paddling real hard, and he got to this spot, which they call the duck pond. It's just one small area in the middle of the rapid where the water is kind of flat between all the, the waves. And it's at that spot they can turn the boat a little bit and change their line going through the rapids. And I remember we hit a big wave and Rondo said bail. And so Ian and I were bailing the, the front of the boat and we cleared the footwell in like no time. <laughs> and he said, it's not over yet. It's not over yet. We still have a big wave. And he's paddling. And this all happens within, I don't know, five to ten seconds. So it, it feels like time stopped. But he said, here comes the big wave. I, I'm going to need you guys to high side. And it was coming right at us at the front. So he was he was talking to Ian and I. And 
as soon as we got to that big wave, he he did not have to tell us. It came straight up, and the boat went vertical, and Ian and I just threw our bodies on the front of the bow, and the boat just kind of stopped at vertical, and we went back over forward instead of flipping backwards. And I could tell you, if we had not leaned on the bow, the boat would have gone all the way over. So Rhonda was really happy about that. And then, <laughs> you know, a few more seconds of, of wildness and we were out of it. And then we could go back to joking around. Right. That was so thrilling and exciting. I wish we would have a video of that. I would love to see that little dory boat airborne and see see our faces in terror back there. <laughs> <laughs> So our last night on the river was spent at Grapevine Camp, which is just shy of mile 82. Now, they reserve the site for river trips who are making passenger exchanges at Phantom Ranch. And I remember it was sad when we got there that, I don't know, it felt like the trip was over and we didn't want it to be over. That was a really nice camp. It was, it, it was a beautiful camp because mm-hmm. the, the cliffs and the mountains across the river were spectacular. And then they they even took us up on a really great hike above Grapevine. Straight it's, up the mountain. It's straight up a mountain. It's, it's not even called a trail. It's called a route where you just <laughs> you literally pick your way up through this ravine. And that was beautiful. Yeah, it was a very fun night. Uh, a little bittersweet because we knew it was coming to an end. And the next morning, there was a lot of business to take care of for the passenger exchange. I know the crew had to change out uh, our sleeping bag liners and our pillowcases for the new people who would be using them, the, the new folks who were hiking down to Phantom Ranch. And then we had to make sack lunches for ourselves and for the new passengers. And I, ne- I never understood why we were all making two lunches. I, I think I missed <laughs> that instruction because they, they said, make a, make a lunch for you and a friend. I remember <laughs> you like, said, I don't have, you any said I don't have any friends. <laughs> and I I'll have, eat two lunches. <laughs> I have to say, <laughs> the lunch I made for my friend was not really good. Good luck. I was at the end of the line. I think I had, there was like one piece of lettuce, some mustard, oh and maybe like one piece of salami. It was okay. the- <laughs> so. Just picture some poor person is hiking down ten miles, and they get handed your sack lunch—a wilted piece of lettuce with pepperoni and mustard. Oh my gosh! I feel so bad for them. I'll, I'll have to listen to the instructions next time. Better. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I think you will. If any of those folks are listening to this podcast, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I didn't have anything left to put on the sandwich. I know you didn't. So when we got in the Dory's um, and did our final Dory's hoe, we only had six miles left to go. Phantom Ranch is at mile 89. And yeah, there were some fun runs through the rapids. And then we landed on the beach at Phantom Ranch. If you're not familiar with what Phantom Ranch is, it's a set of cabins and a campsite that's about a mile off the river on the north side of the river. And uh, that's where we were going to spend the night that night and then hike out the next day. So that, that was our home for the evening. That's right. Now, when we got off the boats at the beach there, the 16 new passengers hadn't made it down yet. They hadn't arrived. And for a second... 
I was hoping against hope. Not that something bad had happened to them, but for some reason they weren't coming. Like somebody would cancel and we're... (laughs) All 16 of them. And then they would ask us if we wanted to continue because I was not ready to leave. And I think everybody else felt the same way. I think if there were two spots open, any couple would have gone the, the rest of the way. We did not want that trip to end. Now, unfortunately, this podcast episode has to end. Sometime. (laughs) (laughs) So everything that we've talked about and much, much, much more is in our book called Dory's Ho. So if you haven't read it yet, check it out. It's for sale on Amazon. And part two is coming up. Yeah, that'll be fun. Yes. So join us next week for part two as we talk about the next chapter in the story, the second trip down. And in this, you know, we've gotten a lot of the details out of the way now. How do you go to the bathroom? What are the meals? You know, what's camp like? So we've already talked about that. So on the next episode, we're going to focus more on some of the amazing hikes that we did and some of the huge rapids. There are a lot more rapids on the second half of the trip and just a lot more exciting adventures. So tune in next week. Yeah, that'll be fun. What's in the mailbag today? In today's mailbag, Matt, is an email. (laughs) Why are you laughing at me? I'm trying to make this so professional. You take it so seriously. This is serious <laughs> yeah. business. This, this is, is mailbag. mailbag. It's mailbag time. Okay. Karen, what's in the mailbag? Okay. Today's question is from Brad and Spencer. Now, they are father and son. I'm assuming the father is Brad, but I, I'm, I'm not sure about that. Do we need to stop and find that out uh, before we no, continue? No, I, I don't think it's relevant, but they are on a journey to visit all the parks. They've already seen like 45 of them, so they're going great gangbusters, but they haven't been to the ones that are far away and hard to get to and expensive. So Brad's question for us is, for the parks that you will only visit one time, what would you do differently if you went back? Well, I'll tell you some things that we do now, probably which is different than what we did back before. If you have a sense that you're only going to go there once, There's things you can do to prepare. And one thing that we always do is we look at the park's website. Every park has a website, and they're configured kind of the same way. They kind of have the same structure. And they all have a list of what to know before you get there. There's maps. And and generally, you can tell by the website, like, what's the big thing in that park? Mm -hmm. Like, what's it known for? And what, what are the major attractions? Sometimes there's one single attraction. So that's one thing. I know one thing that you do often Mm -hmm. is you read all the blog posts of of people who have visited those parks to get ideas. I do. And there weren't as many blog posts back in 2010, 11, and 12 when we were doing our first go-round. But now there are hundreds, if not thousands, of blog posts. And it's interesting to read what other people do. And we've gotten a lot of great ideas. And I think there, you know, there isn't just one way to see the parks. There are a lot of different choices. and, And it's really helpful to read what other people are doing. And then the thing we tell people sounds a little bit like a broken record, but go to the visitor center, talk to either the information desk or ranger there. And if I thought I was only going to be at this park once, whether it's one day visit or a three day visit, but probably not coming back, I would talk to the ranger and just say, I probably not going to come back. 
And what would you do if you only had one visit to do the parks? And these rangers, they live there, they've worked there. They know the best of the best of the park. And so I think that's a, a another really good source of ideas of what you would do if you only had limited amount of time, or it's going to be your, your only visit to that park. Right. And if the visitor centers are closed like they currently are, you could always call and talk to a ranger. They're more than happy to give advice like that. I think speaking from our personal experience, one regret I have is that I did not look at it the way that you're looking at it, Brad, is I'm only going to be here once and I might never come back. And I wish I would have looked at it that way because I think I would have approached things differently, maybe with a little more sense of urgency. For instance, when we went to the Virgin Islands, we sort of treated it like a Caribbean vacation, which it was, but we spent a full day on the beach drinking painkillers, <laughs> which was very fun. But I wish instead we had gone into the park and hiked more. And and the times that we went for happy hour in bars, I regret that. And I wish we would have been in the parks now we take our dinners into the parks and we're always there for sunset and we spend as much of the entire day as we can. So my advice would be, you know, look at it the way you are looking at it with the attitude that this is my one and only shot and I'm going to see as much as I can. So no more happy hours? <laughs> no more sitting on the bed. You're scaring me. <laughs> okay. The fun is over. Thank you, thank you, Brad, for your question. <laughs> no, the happy hour has just been moved to the park. Okay. All right. <laughs> Do you have a question for us? If so, send us an email to Matt and Karen Smith at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. You can go to facebook.com slash dear Bob and S, or you can also find us on Instagram at Matt and Karen Smith. To see pictures from our first dory boat trip down the Colorado River, go to www.thedearbobandsuepodcast.com and click on the title for episode 22. There you'll find the show notes for this episode and links to other information. Now, at the beginning of this episode, we talked about Thanksgiving and gratitude, and I just have to say how grateful we are to all of you who've listened to our show and left such wonderful reviews on Apple Podcasts. Last month, I mentioned that it would be my dream to get to 500 reviews by Christmas, and it's really been touching how many of you responded. Thank you so much for that. And for those of you who haven't had a chance to leave a review yet, just a reminder that anyone can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, no matter what podcast app you listen to our show on. And I'm surprised we didn't get any comments for me laughing at your dream. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say it did seem far-fetched, like it wouldn't happen, but I think we're only 30 reviews away. So I, I'm, I'm feeling the Christmas miracle about I, to happen. <laughs> I can't wait to find out what your next dream is. <laughs> The books that this podcast is based on are available on Amazon.com. Just search for Dear Bob and Sue, or for this episode, Dory's Ho. And you can also find more information about us by heading over to www.dearbobandsue.com. Our show is produced by our amazing team at Puddle Creative in Portland, Oregon. Our artwork is by the designers at Expert Subjects, and our theme music is by Will West. And Matt, I'm so glad that by the time we did our second Dory trip, you had the whole skirts up, pants down thing figured out. Yeah, so am I. You guys were like a pack of wild animals whenever I wandered over that way. I, 
I like my chances better with the bears and the wolves. 